Well, good morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 this morning, Luke chapter 1. We're walking through over an eight-week period the Gospel of Luke, and uh, if you've ever read the Gospel of Luke before, it's it's 24 chapters long, and so eight weeks mean we're going to be kind of just hitting some of the high points and going in a little deeper on certain passages, but then other passages we're just going to have to kind of look at from a bigger perspective. And today, this is one of those days where we're going to look at a little bit larger passage, but I want us to kind of be seeing the big picture of these couple of chapters and why it is that Luke is recording all of these things. Um, There was a 1990 movie called Awakening, and um, it was a movie starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro, and the storyline is kind of loosely based on a true story of uh, a a neurologist, a doctor that was was trying to, to work with, with patients who had had encephalitis and then had entered into this catatonic state where they were, it, it, they were, it looked like they were awake, their eyes were open, but they were just almost non-responsive. They were just kind of staring off in the distance, many times kind of like, almost like a statue fixed in a certain position. And if there was any response from them, it was completely disconnected from what was going on around them. They would begin yelling, maybe a certain phrase or something like that, and they just couldn't figure out really what was going on. But this doctor figured out that there was a certain medication that if he could administer it to the patients, it was used to treat Parkinson's disease, but he thought that it might hold promise for bringing them out of this state, some of them who had been in this state for many years. And so that's part of the storyline with Robert De Niro's character is he's one who from teenage years had entered into this catatonic state of just being kind of a a living statue and he comes out of this state. Well, he's now in his 40s, okay? So he's been in this state for a long time and the scene that unfolds that I wanna bring your attention to is where... Um, Robin Williams is preparing the mother of the character played by Robert De Niro to meet her son after she's lost him for almost 30 years now. And so he's talking science. So he's walking down the hall and he's trying to kind of get her ready of like why the medicine works and how it's interacting with certain neurons and it's opening up things. You can see her, she's listening as walking along or whatever, but then nothing could fully prepare her for the moment she opens the door and there stands her son who's been gone for 30 years, present, growing, but gone. And he turns to her shaking and he says, mom, she is in awe. She's just standing there. She can't believe what she's seeing, even though the doctor has tried to prepare her. Well, in the same way, the good doctor, Luke, has tried to prepare us for what we're about to read in this next section. You see, the reality is he has taken a doctor-like approach to the first four verses of his book. He, he, he goes through the medical science, as it were. He talks about the eyewitness accounts and how he's carefully compiled his report, how he's put it in a chronological fashion. He's talking all the science to the reader because he knows that what they're about to hear is unbelievable. It, it really should not just settle in on you like Christmas often does for us today. You see, we have so become accustomed to the Christmas season and to the scene of the nativity and to angels and these sort of things that we just welcome it freely because from childhood, we're acquainted with these stories and that's good. But along the way, you lose the impact that this story would have had in the beginning. How remarkable it would be that God would cause a virgin to conceive 
the Son of God and give birth to him, God with us, the Messiah, growing from infancy into a man and all the while growing in stature and in favor with man and God. I mean, the story should blow us away. And that's why he spends the time to kind of anchor us with confidence so that we can walk with Jesus in confidence because he knows that what's about to be on display should cause us to walk with Jesus in awe, in absolute awe of what God has done. To really summarize why we should be set in awe from the words of the angel Gabriel that he speaks to Mary, where he tells her what this one to be conceived in her is to be. And so I wanna invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we turn to chapter one, beginning in verse 30. And I just wanna read a few verses for you to just let the, the power of God set you in awe again of his son. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus, we ask that you would again set us in awe of your greatness. As we think about what it means to walk with you in this life, to follow after you, we think about your nearness. We think about the song that we sang this morning, what a friend we have in Jesus. But remind us that that friend is a king. And that king has humbled himself completely by coming to be conceived in a virgin, born as a baby, and to grow as a child and an adolescent into adulthood. Set us in awe again of what you have done for our salvation. Set us in awe again of what the gospel communicates. And set us awe again today of your love for us expressed fully in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray, amen. You can be seated. This morning, my hope for us is that we will continue to walk with Jesus in awe. We walk with confidence. Luke has anchored us to the confidence of what he's written. But then what he records in great detail here that John and Mark really don't include. They, they don't have any of this account, you know, really kind of captured in their accounts. But Luke wants his reader to be in awe of what God has done. He wants you to be enamored with the story of Christ. And so this morning, for us to stand in awe, I want us to see some of the major movements of these two chapters, chapters one and two. And we're gonna look at a lot of the passages, though some of it we're just gonna have to summarize for the sake of time. So first of all, I want us to be in awe of the introduction, to be in awe of his introduction, this introduction of Jesus coming to be with us. We see, first of all, that heaven Heaven itself, the place where God resides, announces the coming of the Son. And this takes place through the angel Gabriel, this elect messenger of God who comes and he speaks both to Zechariah and he speaks to Mary. And so let's start with Mary first. 
I want you to see, I want you to just let God's word wash over you again, beginning in verse 26 of chapter 1. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless for nothing will be impossible with God. And listen to Mary's response. May this be the response of every believer. I am the Lord's servant said Mary, may it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. I want you to see just for a moment how heaven proclaims and introduces this one who will be born of a virgin. Now notice Mary's response. This is the response of every believer. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. I would invite you to memorize that verse and make that your prayer in this life to announce, to proclaim before God Almighty, to bow before Jesus on a regular basis and say, I am your servant, may it be to me according to your word. That which you have spoken, may it be in accordance in my life. And that's the example that we can see of Mary. Now, obviously, we live in a Catholic region. South Louisiana is known for a heavy Catholic presence, Roman Catholicism. Some of you maybe grew up Roman Catholic, and there's a high regard for Mary, but within the Protestant faith, we don't often speak of Mary, but I want instead to allow Scripture to be the corrective for us, that Mary is regarded with favor by God. And that word for favor is grace. Mary does experience the grace of God to be included in this ministry that he is doing for the reconciliation of all people allowing her to take this part in the story. But be also mindful that within the Catholic Church, there are teachings about Mary that are attempts to fill in gaps. In other words, there are questions that naturally arise. Well, how was it that Jesus was without sin? He, certainly, he has God as his father, but if Mary was sinful, well, then certainly Jesus would have received her guilt in him. And so in order to get to a sinless savior, we have to have a sinless father and a sinless mother. And so that's where you get the doctrine of the immaculate conception. You say, well, but I didn't read that in the scripture. That's right. You did not read that in the scripture. That is a man-made conclusion to try to fill in a gap and attempt to answer a theological question, a good question, a question that really maybe more of us should, should grapple with, the real nature of Jesus Christ. How was it that, that Jesus came and was among us? What is the relationship between he and Mary? These are good questions. But may Scripture 
be our supreme and final authority on what is true about Mary. And what is true about Mary is this. She says, I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. An example that every one of us can follow and a reason that we ought to rise up today just as she says later in chapter one and call her blessed because God in his grace was including her in his plan and his action of redemption and sending Jesus Christ to be with us. Heaven introduces Jesus. Second, there's a herald, someone who is heralding that Jesus is the son of God. And who is this herald? Well, it's none other than John the Baptist who is in the womb at the moment that the angel comes to Mary. In fact, we can see the timing being perfect because Elizabeth was thought to be childless. Her and her husband were advanced in age. They were past the years you had babies. And so nobody would have expected Elizabeth to be able to have a baby. And yet it was the sixth month of her who was called childless is what the angel says. And so you see that God is using John the Baptist to prepare the way, to prepare the way of Mary's faith, to say, wow, there is nothing impossible for God. My Aunt Elizabeth is having a baby in her 80s. This is incredible. But what about this baby? What's the role of this baby? Well, this baby would occupy the role that Old Testament prophets of old occupied. This one who would proclaim repentance of sin, exactly what the prophets of old, the major prophets, the minor prophets, were declaring to the people of God to ready them for the coming of the Messiah, to ready them for their king. And that would be the role of John the Baptist, this one who would come right before Jesus himself. And we see this on display back in chapter 1, verse 13, where the angel Gabriel, again speaking to Zacharias, says, beginning in verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son and you will name him John. And there will be joy and delight for you and many will, will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother room another's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him now who's him well him we come to understand very clearly is Jesus he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people you turn over then again in chapter one, beginning in verse 76. And we read this as Zechariah is given the ability to speak again after a moment of having been mute because of his disbelief. He didn't believe that God could do this. He doubted. But now in this moment of John's birth, he is given prophetic utterance to declare these words. Zechariah speaking to his newborn son, John, and he says, beginning in verse 76, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." 
The child grew up and became spiritually strong, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And we see very clearly being played out in the rest of the gospel, the role of John the Baptist is being preparatory, that those who came out to John and believed his message, they were the ones who were ready to receive Jesus as king and to follow him. They were the ones whose hearts were inclined to the message of Jesus, whereas you see the Pharisees going out to John and they don't believe what he has to say. And he rebukes them because of their disbelief and because of the hardness of their hearts. But those who received his message were in, inclined to receive Jesus as Lord. So we see heaven proclaiming the angel Gabriel. We see this herald, John the Baptist, preceding Jesus. And another thing about John the Baptist is Jesus himself said of women, no one greater has been born than John the Baptist. But then goes on to say, but I tell you, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. And so there's a dividing line, but notice how he elevates John the Baptist. We might rightly view him as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. You say, but Chad, he's in the New Testament. But Christ hasn't died yet. Christ hasn't been resurrected yet. God's people, Israel, were still being prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And while he was with them, the kingdom of heaven was at hand. They were still a people being prepared for Jesus and what he would do to ultimately liberate them and save them and bring them into his kingdom forever. A kingdom that will have no end as this was declared by the angel Gabriel to Mary. So we are in awe of his introduction from heaven. We are in awe of his introduction through John the Baptist, his herald. And we are in awe of his introduction because it's so humble. It's an in-the-dirt entry into his role. Chapter 2. Verse one, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room available for them in the end. Don't miss it. We make mangers pretty, but they were dirty. They were for feeding animals. People didn't want to have their children in barns it was a humble entry. And that communicates something to us today. That heaven is proclaiming the greatest born among women to that point is coming and proclaiming the humble entry of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That speaks something to us today. It says something about how our existence should be that our King, our Savior, made his introduction in such a humble fashion, such a in-the-dirt fashion, such a boots-on-the-ground fashion, a lack of pomp and circumstance. Today, there are still angelic visions 
There are people around the world who have dreams and say that they've seen visions in preparation for receiving the gospel. There are still heralds, people who go out almost with a prophetic utterance, preparing people for the gospel. And there are still humble conditions in our world today. We think about the the humble conditions even of the Ukraine in this very moment. We think about the humble conditions of those who are fleeing from war, not only in Europe but in other places, even in this moment, who are hiding, who are still. And in each condition, it points to the gospel. The gospel of how God humbled himself, sent his one and only son to be born of a virgin and to be born in a stable, be born in a cave, to be born and laid in a manger. This humble gospel that Jesus denied all of his rights, all of his powers in order to lay them aside and take hold of this status of a servant, to come and to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is ordained that people should be included in his family. And it all starts with an introduction to Jesus. You see, all of these things, these angelic visions, all of these conditions that disrupt our lives and, and orient us to what is the point, all of these things God is using in order to point us to his son. Because God knows that this is the introduction into his family is an introduction to Jesus Christ and what he has done for you and me. So don't miss it. His introduction speaks to the essential nature of being introduced to Jesus. He is the central character. He is the one you and I most need in this life. He is the one that we are to be set in awe of because he alone is God's son. Second, we are to be in awe of Jesus as we walk with him in awe of his inclusion. In awe of his inclusion. You see, the story unfolds into chapter two of who it is that he includes in this introduction in his coming and being born of a virgin and being born in poverty and being born under circumstances that were anything but ideal. People suspecting that maybe Joseph was lying about his relationship with Mary and kind of suspicion about this birth. All of these things And yet what we see is instead of including kings and those of high position and those of great wealth, he includes the out and the odd and the old. He includes the out, the shepherds, in chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in a field, keeping watch overnight of their flock. Then the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a great multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. 
They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph, and the baby was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. In the Christmas pageant with children, the the role that every boy wants is to be the shepherd because it's not much of a talking role, but you get a stick. And so the shepherds garb themselves, you know, with their, their little, you know, robe and their sash and they've got hopefully you know if the if the church budget can spring for it a live animal and they've got a stick and a live animal man you want to be the shepherd but what they don't do is prepare those shepherd boys for what it was really like to be a shepherd you see no anytime I had to play that role in any kind of a play I was never forced to sleep outside for weeks on end without a bath I wasn't dirty. My clothes were clean. And as I played my part, even the sheep smelled pretty good. Not so the shepherd. If anything, the equivalent for today would be the sewage and water board. People who have a job that stinks, but is essential. You see, in Jesus' day, the role that shepherds play was essential. They were a people who depended on people out on the farms, people out in the fields, people growing the crops and raising the animals. They were very dependent, just like you and I are on sewage and water board, but not many shepherds were invited over after a day of long work. In fact, there's a reason they're found out in the fields because it was a job that was required all the time. And yet, God includes them. He includes them, of all people, of all people to announce. He announces to shepherds in a field, smelly, doing essential work, the birth of his son. Well, this suggests something very strongly about the nature of God and the nature of this son. This son is going to do something very essential for mankind. And he's going to do it in the role of, of a shepherd, a shepherd just like David, one who was called in from the fields and was then demonstrated to be anointed by God for the role of leading his people Israel. We see this on display right here, all of the image pointing back to the shepherding role that Jesus would play. But then we keep going through the story and as Jesus is born. It says, then when the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus and he was given the name by the angel, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of his purification, according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That was the offering provision that was given if you couldn't afford more expensive animals. And so we see very clearly, even from what is offered for Jesus, that Mary and Joseph were of humble means. This was not a wealthy family. Again, the out, 
Jesus born to a family in the out, not the in crowd, but the out crowd. And then in this moment, we get this prophetic utterance from a man named Simeon. And if Simeon can be considered anything, it's a little odd. He's a little different. I mean, just think about this scene. If you're a newborn parent and you've come to church on a Sunday for baby dedication, it's that Sunday I want you just to kind of maybe wrap your head around that for a moment, that then some man, a little bit up in years, takes your baby and begins to say these sort of things about him. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. And guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus in to perform to him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed. It doesn't say it, but maybe even a little bit alarmed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary. I mean, just just think about this, mothers in this room. A man you don't really know that well. You maybe know his reputation. There's there's something different about him. He's, He's certainly a godly person. And he looks at you and he says, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. See, God is including people like Simeon who have been waiting. Note how he's he's modified, how he's spoken of, how how he's captured in Scripture. He was looking forward to Israel's consolation. Are you looking for consolation today? Are you the one who maybe has a heart so drawn to God that other people just really can't seem to understand it? Maybe even times in your life, you're like, man, I just don't feel like I fit. God grabs you just like he did Simeon and desires to use you to point people to his son. He desires to use every person in this body to proclaim the goodness of his son to comfort you and to be of comfort to others. So he includes the out, he includes what we would call the odd, and he includes the old, and that's a corrective for us today. In a culture that more and more values children, and that's a good thing, we almost allow it to be like a seesaw of value that is the value of senior adults and those who are advanced in age drops. It seems like we elevate children more and more. Instead, we see an equal value system in God's word, and it's revealed here. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was well along in years. It's a kind way of saying she was very old. And having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. And she did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, we see God 
using this woman that probably many, if we're honest, in that day, they were like just kind of waiting for her to pass. I mean, she's spending an exorbitant amount of time in the, in, in the temple. She's fasting, so she's not eating. It's kind of like, you know, they're probably looking at each other and saying, well, it's not long. At least she's here. At least she's here. And God uses her. He grabs her, and she begins to proclaim in her old age, Jesus. Hear me today. If you are advanced in years, do not think for a moment that God does not want to use you to proclaim his son. I mean, we see it right here. He, he picks up this, this woman who's bowed down and he lifts her up in order to elevate her to then begin to proclaim. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about her. I mean, notice how God elevates those that others look over. God pulls in people from out of the field that others have left out. That's what God's son is doing. He's, he's picking up the lowly. He's bringing in the out. He's using those that we would say, they're a little different. They're a little odd. He's bringing them all together to proclaim one thing, his son. They're all proclaiming Jesus. And so know this, as long as God is giving you days, as, God, as long as God is giving you life, he has given it to you for his glory to proclaim his son. And we see it all over this story. We are in awe of his introduction. We are in awe of his inclusion. And then finally, we are set in awe of his inclination, the inclination of Jesus. You see, it's an inclination to grow. Look at verse 39. It says, when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And then listen to this description of Jesus. The boy grew up and became strong. What boy in this room doesn't want that sentence? What man in this room doesn't want that sentence? Grew up to become strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. We live in a growth-oriented culture. Probably the, the leading books that come out are meant to help you grow. And we look to people who seem to have figured it out, how to grow, how to have personal growth, how to have success, all of these things. Well, I wanna turn your attention to the guru, the one who truly figured it out, the one who is able to instill in you what it means to grow in strength, to grow in wisdom, and to grow in godliness. And his name is Jesus. And he's written a book, and it's right here for you to read. And in it, and as you meditate on it, and as it comes to characterize your life, you will be considered strong. You will be granted by his grace wisdom. And because you're walking in obedience, in accordance with it, God's favor is with you because he has ordained that we orient everything about our lives to his son. His inclination was to grow. His inclination was to gather. Verse 41, it says, every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. And after those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents didn't know it. 
Assuming that he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey, but they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his understanding. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother asked him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them, didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Notice that he had an inclination to gather with the saints, to gather in the temple, to gather in the synagogues, to be with the people of God, to hear the word of God. This inclination in him is tied explicitly to his growth. And so I wanna speak to every parent in the room for just a moment that you have the responsibility of training your children to gather and to, to know that as they gather with the people of God and they position their lives under the word of God, that they are, they are positioning themselves to grow. And if they say, well, why do we have to grow? Because you want them to grow strong. You want them to grow with wisdom and you want them to grow in their understanding of their need for God's favor that is only granted to us in Christ Jesus and in him alone. You are wanting, just like Timothy's mother and grandmother, to familiarize them with the scriptures which are able to make them wise for salvation. The Bible doesn't save you. Please understand that. If the Bible saved us, then we should just buy cases and cases of Bibles and put them on every doorstep because then everybody will be saved. But faith comes through hearing. Hearing from the word of God. And so how are they gonna hear if no one tells them? And how's anybody gonna go telling if they're not sent? And as it is, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We are a sent people. And we go into New Orleans with the gospel to proclaim this message of good news and to teach it to our children. We're in awe of his inclination to grow. We're in awe of his inclination to gather. And we are in awe of his inclination to God. And that's the big point that you should be left with, that this really is the Son of God. I mean, Jesus says it right here as a 12-year-old boy, didn't you know I'd have to be in my father's house? His parents, not even his parents, who spent the most time with him, who knew him better than anyone at this point, they, they couldn't fully understand the incarnation. And that's why Luke starts the way he does, because he knows this is gonna be hard. This was hard for Mary and Joseph to fully grasp. And he knows it's gonna be a challenge for us But we see that then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. He was growing and growing and growing. He was gathering and gathering and gathering and all of these things to be exactly where God would have him to be it would take him on a path that would ultimately lead to a cross. Because you see, and I wanna use the three circles to communicate this kind of in a reverse order. You see, the Bible communicates that you and I are in brokenness. And what that means is that we have an inclination. Jesus had an inclination. It was an inclination toward growth and toward gathering and toward God. But what does the Bible teach about our inclination? Well, our inclination is the opposite. 
You see, Genesis 6, verses 5 through 6, puts explicitly what our inclination is. It says, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man of the earth and was deeply grieved. Well, what follows? The flood. And that puts on display something very significant that we need to wrap our minds around, that in our brokenness, in our inclination to sin, we are under the wrath of God. We deserve punishment. God has demonstrated this in the Old Testament. He's demonstrated this again and again with his people, Israel. And you say, but I haven't really experienced that personally. Don't interpret his patience as an endorsement that you remain in sin. Instead, see it as patience, not desiring that any should perish, which is exactly what his word says. It is not his will that people would perish in their brokenness and in their sin. Because of sin, we are excluded from God. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see, is there any who is wise? Is there any who seeks God? All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one until the one came. And notice how he fulfills exactly, is there any who's wise? Yes, there's one. Is there any who's inclined to God? Yes, there's one. And this one was given for you and for me. Because God's design was that we would have communion with him and relationship with him. But sin entered into the world and it caused the inclination of our hearts to be opposed to God, to hide from God, to resist God, to reject God. But God in his grace did exactly what we have read in this passage. He sent his one and only son, born of a virgin, to come and to live in our broken world, himself not broken, living a perfect life that we are going to see as the pages of Luke unfold. And as we see this story unfold, we realize just how righteous and good he is. That everything that characterized him as a baby and as an adolescent continued into adulthood. He he just continued to reveal in every facet of his life and every interaction of his life just how good he is. And at the end of that perfectly good and righteous life, he died not because he'd done something, not because it finally came out, but because our sin, your sin and mine was finally dealt with once and for all. Jesus dying for sinners like you and me. And there he died and he perished under the weight of our sin and God's wrath against our sin and was then dead and buried in the tomb for three days. But on the third day, God did something to show the world that his son had defeated sin and defeated death to give us hope for resurrection. And that's that he resurrected his son. People walk with him. He instilled to them hope that there is life beyond the grave, that God truly has saved us from sin and death because he's demonstrated it and he's proved it in his son and in his resurrection. So therefore, we can have confidence of something we can't see, the forgiveness of sin, by something we can see, a resurrected Jesus. So we know that what he did on the cross is exactly what we need to happen for our hearts. So I encourage you today, 
Whether you've been attending church your whole life or not, it doesn't matter. If you have never trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone to be your salvation, to be your savior, to surrender to him as Lord, then today is the day of salvation. Do not look back on some former memory. Do not look back on a long attendance. Do not look back on dollars given. Do not look back on hours of service. Do not look back on that as the evidence of your salvation. The evidence of your salvation is the spirit who resides within you. Is the spirit producing fruit? Is it evidenced in your life that you are a forgiver because you've been forgiven? Or do you still wrestle with forgiving anyone because you wrestle with whether you've ever been forgiven? I encourage you, let today be the day of salvation because that's why he came, that's why he died, and that's why he rose. Father, I pray that in this moment, that if there be anyone here who has never responded to your goodness in Jesus Christ, that today they would be set in awe of what you have done in the gift of your son, who is not just a good man, but was the son of God who came and lived among us, who died for us. So may they give their life fully and completely to Jesus Christ today. I'm gonna invite everyone to stand as we respond in song. But if today is the day of salvation in your life, if you're a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, I invite you to make that decision known by coming down forward. Pastors Noah and Corey and myself are here. We want to receive you as evidence of you're being received into the kingdom of God to rejoice with you just as heaven rejoices over one who comes into the kingdom. So you respond now as we all respond in song and in worship.